500 years ago he washed ashore the sole survivor of a shipwreck and upon the skull of the man who killed his dad he said i'm mad i must eradicate piracy injustice and cruelty and all my sons will follow me so evil doers will believe that this man cannot die the phantom the ghost who walks the phantom enemies beware the phantom's always there but you won't find the phantom he finds G'day everybody, and for those who have come in late, you're listening to X-Ban, the Phantom Podcast. My name is Jermaine, and today I am joined by Dan. How are you, Dan? Uh, very good, Jermaine. Um, yeah, pleased to, be, pleased to be sitting down talking some Phantom with you. Mate, uh, yeah, um, okay. <laughs> no, it, it is great. <laughs> uh, I, I love doing the podcast, and I actually really enjoy listening back to the podcast as well, because... I find that when you when you when you're doing them, you don't always take in as much as as you can when you re when you re-listen yeah. to it. This one, I'm really and looking forward to. Yeah, sure. I, I will say that um, at the time of recording, we've been very, very, very busy doing um, well life, yes. but also the uh, bushfire book, which um, is very phantom time-consuming at the moment. And uh, yeah. it's actually really nice to be taking a step. I stepped back from the book for a little while and uh, going and exploring a completely different direction. So um, it's quite refreshing, I think, yes. tonight. Yeah, 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 definitely. So what we'll do is we'll introduce our guest and then we'll have some fun or some phantoming. Okay, so today we are joined by uh, Mike Bullock. Uh, Mike Bullock, for those who are coming late, uh, came to Phantom Fame in 2005 with him working on Moonstone. Now, one interesting fact about Moonstone is that February 2020, it is actually 18 years since Moonstone's first comic, uh, which I'm not sure. Well, let's, let's say that we did this interview on purpose to time it with that. Um, mm, no, very clever interesting, of us. <laughs> yeah, very clever of us. Uh, another interesting fact about Moonstone is that when you're talking about the US publishers, we all know that they're, there's been limited success with uh, Phantom being published by a US publisher, and Moonstone is actually the, the most successful publisher from pure comic book numbers that have been published. Because if you, most people might jump up and down and say, well, what about Charlton, Gold Key, and, and uh, King? But that was actually three publishers that have published between them 74 issues. If you look at Moonstone, they have published over uh, those numbers and it's all done by the one publisher. So Moonstone uh, has got a very big footprint in the Phantom Law in America, but also around the world. So uh, Michael, or Mike, how are you? And uh, welcome to the Phantom Expand podcast. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. No worries. So now it's been a while since we've, we've chatted. Um, and you know, for those who are regulars on Chronicle Chamber, they probably are aware that there's been an interview with Mike, <laughs> what, back 13 years ago, I think in it was? Of, in, ter- um, in, in terms of being a regular, the, the interview was in December, 2007. So, uh, you yeah. be very regular and very rusted on to, to remember. So, we really um, appreciate you giving that interview back then, Mike, because it was, um, good of you to give up your time then as well. Yeah, I appreciate it. So, 
Yeah, so I guess let's just let's just start off from the beginning. Uh, Mike, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your age or your age range, uh, where you were raised, how you decided you wanted to write comics, and just tell us a little bit about from the the earlier years and what formed. The well, I am older than I want to admit. Uh, I've had a lot of twenty first birthdays over the years. Uh, I was. <laughs> Born and raised in Washington, D.C., uh, which is a great place if you want to be a politician or a drug dealer. I aspired to neither, <laughs> so I got out as soon as I could. Uh, I found myself in uh, the professional music scene, uh, toured and recorded with some, some heavy metal bands for a while, but writing was always my first love. Uh, when my music career kind of wound down, uh, my wife was you know, very adamant that I was driving her crazy because I had no creative outlet and that I really needed one. So I kind of befriended a guy who worked for a comic publisher. He connected me to Ron Mars. Ron Mars kind of took me under his wing and helped me out a little bit. Um, I put together my first uh, creator-owned comic, Lions, Tigers, and Bears, pitched it to Image Comics along with my artist, Jack Lawrence. And Eric Larson loved it. Uh, came out uh, it did fairly well for an all-ages comic at the time um, through the, the periods of that I had a buddy come to me and ask me if I could connect him to Mustafa books and I had developed a friendship with Joe Gentile the uh, CEO uh, editor-in-chief so forth so on of Moonstone books so I called Joe and I told him hey I've got this buddy who you know wants to try and write some stories for you and Joe was like hey that's great we'll talk about that later I want you to write for us <laughs> and I was like oh okay what do you want me to write and he's like well how would you like to do a fan story and I was like, I'd love to do a phantom story so I put together a pitch for a phantom story he took it to King Features to get their approval uh, Karen Moy at the time was the connection at uh, King Features, and she loved it, and I put it out, and I think the day after it hit stands, we found out that uh, regular writer Ben Rabb was leaving the series, and Joe came back to me and said, hey, your, your issue's done well, and King Features likes it, and the fans seem to like it, so how would you like to just take over? And how can you say no to that? So, mm, yeah. so was your friend... A little bit uh, upset that um, he asked you to get him a job and you got yourself a job instead? If I remember correctly, I got him one anyway. So. Uh, okay, <laughs> All right. that's cool. Um, Can I just jump okay, in there? You, so, you, said, um, yeah. you said, Mike, that um, you, you jumped at the chance. I'd love to write a Phantom story. You could hear the enthusiasm in your voice. Um, were you a fan before that? Obviously, it sounds like you'd, you'd read a lot of comic, uh, Phantom comics and, and been a fan before the job offer. Yeah, uh, so when I was a kid, probably, you know, middle school, high school years, you know, which in the United States is like 7th to 12th grade, almost every Sunday my family would have a tradition where we would get the newspaper and we would just read, sit and read the newspaper in the living room together. And of course for me, there, you know, I wasn't really into politics, which is what dominates the Washington Post, the newspaper in D.C., um, and I really wasn't into, you know, current events that were happening in the city at the time. So I would always gravitate to the entertainment section and the comic section. And of course, in the comic section, we had Spider-Man, the Phantom, 
uh, Peanuts, Mary Worth, a lot of those, Andy Cap, those sorts of things. But the Phantom and Spider-Man were always the two that I always read. Mm-hmm. And I love the Phantom, but they're, they came in such short little snippets that and I, mm-hmm. we didn't get the newspaper during the week, so I would only get the Sundays. And it was just like I never could get enough because as soon as I would start to get into the story, it would be to be continued and I have to wait a week. <laughs> yeah. you know? um, it's just always a character I always was enthralled with. Um, I just love that, that kind of golden age of heroes, you know, the, the Phantom, um, Green Lantern, a lot of those characters that were created in that time frame that were just so imaginative and yeah. took so many neat elements from, you know, pop culture and, and heroic fiction and so forth and kind of molded them into this new, this new thing called the, the superhero or the masked hero or whatever label you want mm. to put on. Do you remember the first story you actually really engaged with and, and would you just, you know, um, out on the doorstep waiting for the Sunday newspaper to be delivered? Actually, I do not. So. Okay. <laughs> I, can, I can picture picture panels of him, you know, leaving skull marks and things like that and yep. running through the jungle, you know, that sort of stuff, but I don't remember any of the individual stories. The individual, mm-hmm. yeah, fair enough. Yep. Yeah, like I said, it's... it's been a couple of days since I was that age. So. <laughs> yeah, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> um, okay, okay. So one thing that I've always wondered is what happened to Ben Rabb? Was it the TV and movies op- uh, opportunities that came his way? Was that the reason why he moved on? Uh, to be honest, I, I, I don't want to speak on Ben's behalf. He's okay. a great, great guy and you know, I didn't really dive into it, but I do know that he was getting those opportunities at the time and he was really excited and he needed to clear some things from his play. I, I don't want to speculate that that's why he stepped aside, but I would almost assume that it was. I know King Features loved him. Uh, the folks at Moonstone loved him. He's a great guy. So, you know, to me, it was just an honor to be able to try and fill his shoes. And I don't know that I ever did fill his shoes, but it was, it was pretty cool to yeah. come behind I think you saw yourself a little bit short there. Um, your, your series, your series were very um, enjoyable. One of the things I remember talking about your work with a lot of fans and, and stuff like that. A lot of one of the things that we always talked about was your Phantom seemed more real life than maybe even possibly like an Egmont or anything like that. Like you dealt with real life issues we had, you know. Uh, salmon, we had child soldiers, we had blood diamonds, we had dictators, we had drugs. Was was this like a, a something that you wanted to, I, I guess, focus on with your Phantom? I, to me, it just, it's that's what Lee Falk would have done. Mm. And I, I was blessed enough to be very, become very, very good friends with Ed Rhodes. Um, and he was very good friends with Lee Falk. Uh, he would pass a lot of that information to me. I was able to spend a great deal of time on the phone with Cy Berry, who would tell me the same things that, you know, Falk always just always wanted the character to be contemporary. He always yeah. wanted him dealing with modern things. And you can look back through the history. He was involved yeah. in the Korean or the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the war on drugs, all those things. So why would he not be involved in human trafficking? Why would he not be involved yeah. in you know, blood diamonds and child slavery and all these things that are hills of the world today. Why would the Phantom not go try and stop those things? So. Yeah. Did, like, 
Was was it was it something that you were strong about in like in your own convictions? Uh, a fair bit, yeah. I, I'm very very passionate about uh, protecting children, protecting those who can't defend themselves, and I think that you know that's you can call it chivalry, you can call it whatever you want, but I'm just really big on that. I think you know the world has a major father crisis mm. right now. Um, mm. At least in America, that's a huge Sign problem over. where you know, a huge chunk of our societal ills are from, from lack of fathers in the household. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the fathers that are in the household don't, you know, protecting their family is not their number one priority. Yeah. Now, granted, there's a huge segment of, of men that do do that, but the ones that don't, and to me, that, that's where you get the heroes. That's the, the heroes that we all know and love, the, the Phantoms, the John Carters, the Conans, the the men that stand up to evil, and the, man, the men that will put themselves in harm's way to protect those that they're supposed to protect. So that's just always been something that's appealed to me and something that mm. I feel like the world needs more of. And I believe Lee Falk mm. believes the same thing. Yeah, definitely. Mm. I know that that passion, I asked that question because I already knew the answer. That <laughs> passion. Um, I remember when there's the series on the child's I think it was 16, 17, and 18 um, of the first series. And we, uh, you, even, you and Moonstone even partnered with an organisation that was literally on the front line dealing against child soldiers. Uh, was that something that uh, you orchestrated? or? Uh, that's kind of something I kind of refer to as like a divine appointment. I was trying to put together some ideas for future phantom stories. And I happened to have a really good friend whose childhood best friend was one of the founders of Invisible Children. Yep. Um, and he had mentioned something about it to me, but we hadn't really gone in depth. And then one of my in-laws friends had come back from a mission trip in Africa where she had encountered uh, the Invisible Children movement over there. And, seen child slavery firsthand and all that. She came back and she shared it with me. Um, and it just immediately to me was like, this is what the phantom would do. He would step into the middle of this and he would, you know, chop the head off of that snake and put it to an end. Mm. So literally got up from the meal we were having with this woman and walked outside and called Joe at Moonstone and told him about it. And I was like, I want to do this. And he was like, you're absolutely going to do this. Let's make this happen. So, and then I went back to my friend who was best friends with one of the founders. He connected me with invisible children. Mm. Just went I remember I would have been, I think I would have been about early twenties and, you know, I'll at that stage and I was um, at, at, at uni and stuff like that. And it really opened, I've heard about it, but I didn't really know just you know that it was actually kind of you know the, the power um you know that that was behind it and stuff like that so from from myself uh at someone who was at a fairly informal you know fairly impressionable time it really spoke to me um that whole that that series and learning about the child soldiers or learning more about the child soldiers and slavery and that was happening in you know today's you know in today's world Yeah, and that was one of the things I hoped was that it would draw attention 
you know, it's it's so easy to get caught up in your, your little worldly bubble of whatever your life is of going to work and going to the store and getting the kids to school or going to school yourself or whatever that is, that you almost kind of forget that there's so many other things going on in the world. Mm. You know, the that's that's the kind of thing that, you know, people can step into and bring it into. And thankfully, Joseph Coney was finally caught and, and that was all put to an end. But I'm sure something else will rise up in its place. Yeah, unfortunately, that's very true. Hmm. Um, so you, you've made... Um, you made mention of, you know, dealing with child soldiers. One of the other things that you really, that you, that you were big in with the stories you created was some of the bad guys that you created. It was like almost every issue there was a different big bad guy that the Phantom had to deal with. Um, you, you were almost trying to create a, a rogues gallery to rival Batman or something like that. Um, did you was there a specific bad guy that you created that you enjoyed writing the most about? Were there any bad guys that you modeled on real life people or anything like that? Um, I kind of liked them all. Part <laughs> of the reason that I tried to create so many was that you know it was kind of obvious the you know Superman's got Lex Luthor and and Batman has the Joker and that sort of thing, and the Phantom never really had that character. He had you know. Uh, a, a rogues gallery of his own that Lee Falk had created, but there was no one that was like always returning and never would go away. Um, and so I kind of felt like, like for the American audience, that's sort of what they look for is, yeah. you know, a hero is measured by their counterpart, their, their evil twin or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so I was just kind of thinking, okay, well, I'm going to start making these characters, these villains and, one of them is going to speak to the audience and then that one we can kind of turn into a recurring. Um, mm. And then him, which was the one we based off of Joseph Coney, just kind of became the natural to, you know, he needs to rear his ugly head again until we can finally put him to rest. So, Yeah. Now, the bad guy that I almost felt sorry for was the one that he first introduced in Tiger's Blood. Um, what was his name? Was it Oct... Oh, where is it? Um, started with an O. Uh, Manuel Ortega. Yeah, okay, that didn't start with O. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know the one I was talking about. Yeah, so like, I almost felt sorry for, for him as a bad guy. And that was kind of on purpose. It was, yeah. you know, a little shade of grey there is, is, you know, so that the average person could kind of understand his, his motivations. Um almost kind of feel sorry for him, even though he was still making poor choices mm. going forward, Bill's choices, you know? And I, he was a, my original first attempt at trying to make somebody that would kind of become the joker to the Phantom's back. Yeah. But it, it just didn't quite yeah. play out. Now, I think in that one, um, it, it, the, the, the Phantom has a real teachable moment with um, with Kit Walker. Was that uh, with Kit Junior? Was that in the first part or was, or the second part? Sure, <laughs> I haven't, <laughs> haven't dug through those stories in so long. I, I... <laughs> <laughs> they're very very specific questions about stories that uh, you must have written these um, 15, 18 years ago, Mike. <laughs> yeah, those I think I wrote 
that story in 2004. So okay. yeah, it's been- Was yeah. that your first story? Yeah, that was my first phantom story. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right, well, yeah, no, there was just a, there was a real teachable moment um, for those who haven't listened to it, where um, I think f- from memory, the Phantom brings home some tiger cubs and Kit Jr. gets really upset about them, about the parents being um, uh, murdered, I guess is for lack of a better, a better word. And it was just a real teachable moment where the Phantom was like, you know, like, you know, like you, we can get angry, but we can't let that like consume us uh, uh, and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I've got young, impressionable children at the moment. So maybe I just look too much into uh, teachable moments for my five-year-old and two-year-old. But, That's good. Um, <laughs> I enjoyed it. <laughs> um, the other story, uh, there's a couple of other stories that I, I just want to focus a little bit on because... Um, like you know, so there's so many, there's so many interesting lines of um, and stories that you explored, and then unfortunately we didn't get to kind of finish them. But the other one was when the Phantom went back um, to meet with, uh, went back to Clarksville, mm-hmm. to and he dropped in to visit his aunt and uncle. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about that? No. <laughs> <laughs> I remember writing it. I don't remember much of the details. To be okay, so so basically, there was a, a street gang that um, just after the time he has taken over the oath of the Phantom, and he goes back and visits his aunt and uncle. And um, it was really it was a really emotional story because you know I guess in so many ways the aunt and uncle were were were, were parent. The parental figures to the Phantom um, when he had to, you know, visit the US instead of spending time with his own parents. So, um, and then I, there was there was a moment where he almost lost control in bringing the the street gang to justice as well. So, to be, um, to be honest, and I, I I might be misremembering that, but I think Ed Rhodes actually gave me the inspiration for that story. Um, oh. I know he had really fond memories of them from the original stories. And he really felt that they mm. were kind of underserved in Phantom War. Yeah. Um, you know, like, is, a, is a family character by, by nature. You know, there's this, this underlying always there connection between father and son. So why not expand on the family motif, so to speak? Um, yeah. And then it kind of, you know, like as stories tend to do, you start with an idea and then it just kind of gets out of your control as you're just following where the characters take you. <laughs> yeah. Do you have, like, looking back 10, 15 years uh, in the past, do you have a, a a certain story or a comic book or, you know, that that's kind of like your favourite or like an idea or, or anything that was your favourite? Uh, are you referring to the ones that I created or... Yeah, I guess the ones you created, and then I guess we can go where, you know, some stories that you've read as well of the Phantom from, you know, Lee Fork and others. Um, the one that I wrote that I, I was the happiest with, I mean, I don't think is a, at least for me, I don't know that I was ever fully happy with any of them. I could always see mm-hmm. imperfections and things that I wish I could have done differently. You know, you're, you're producing the stories on this 
schedule so you can't sit and tweak them and, and mess with them after the fact. So you always see something that you wish you had done differently. But the prose story Final War that ended up in the Phantom Generations book, like towards the very tail end of our run, I think is the one that speaks to me the most. And it was the one that I was the happiest with and the one that I wished had gotten a bigger audience. I know a lot of people mm. never got the chance to read that because it only appeared in that generations, which I don't think. I think it is was that the, the three special to 5, generations copies. one? Yeah, yeah. I think I know the one you're talking about. Yeah. What was that story again? Sorry. That story was about the death of the Phantom. He oh, wow. he um, encounters a rogue lion that has been going into the villages and slaughtering people, and so he goes out into the deep woods or dark woods excuse me to stop him and ends up encountering the lion the lion almost kills him and he gets away but then come to find out the lion that actually struck a mortal blow to him and his kind of life is going before his eyes and he's thinking about what it's going to mean for his son to take over for him and all these things while the lion is stalking him through the, the final moments of his life i think i remember that story Hmm. I really enjoyed the Generation series. I kind of wish that actually was completed because it wasn't completed and it was disappointing. Yeah, we, we had a lot of things still in the works. The, the change to um, Dynamite completely took us off guard. Um, yeah. You know, I, you can, somebody can accuse me of being unprofessional for saying this, but we had no idea it was coming until it was announced by Dynamite that they had the license, which kind of pulled the rug out from under us. Um, the Generation series had bigger plans. We were trying to find different ways to tell stories and, and expand the medium instead of just the standard comic book panel format. Yeah. And we were having some success with some of those. I think those ones were what Joe had dubbed the wide vision, where you could have uh, yes. a, a, a giant piece of artwork and then a prose story going along with it yeah. for every page, for every page. Um, kind of sort of like a storybook comic book hybrid. Yeah. Um, and we were trying to look at ways to take those sorts of stories and then morph them into digital only and put them on iPads and things like that. Um, hmm. We had, I had planned out, I think 48 issues of the Phantom past the issue 12 of the ghost who walks where the series ended. Really? Yeah, I mean, we had we had a lot of stuff in the works, and we're looking for ways to to gain more traction with it. Um, one of the problems we were running into is, you know, in the United States culture, if if there's not a pop culture attachment to the property, it's really hard to get people to pay attention. You can't, you don't get much bookstore space, you don't get much comic rank space if there's not something going along with it, like. You know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe um, meant that, you know, the department stores would give shelf space to the toys. You know, Walmart was beginning to put Marvel Comics in the stores during the height of that arc. Um, you know, Star Wars is always going to have shelf space. It's always going to get public attention. With King Features being the way they were set up, and it was more of a licensing format instead of a company that owns it that has their own stake in it. It, it kind of undermines that ability. So you're licensing a property from somebody that's really not doing anything to promote it because that's just not their business model. Yeah. 
you know, King Features started out as syndicating newspaper strips. Yeah. And as the newspaper was going away at the dodo, it, you know, it was being replaced by video and digital formats and streaming and all these things. And the Phantom just didn't go with it. So that, that made it tough to, to gain market share, that made it tough to gain fans and new fans. Um, I would sit and do comic conventions and, and kids would walk up and they'd ask me if I wrote Spider-Man or Batman or one of these. And I'd be like, no, I wrote the Phantom. And they'd be like, the who? What is that? Yeah. And then I would explain it to them. And sometimes they would get hooked and they would pick up copies. And sometimes they would just be like, no, I want something from the movie I just saw. Or I want the character that's in the video game I've been playing. Or that sort of thing. So it, it, it kind of made it tough, which probably I would assume has also impacted you know, the, the publishers that have dealt with the character since we left. So, yeah. Mm. So you said that you had forty-eight issues planned. Um, That—that's news to me. I—I I didn't know that you had another forty-eight issues already planned. Is there any? You know, I guess. Do you remember any of the the story plots or or anything like that that you can maybe tell us and our listeners? Well, I think we were saying. Uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, and I think what Jermaine, I think what Jermaine's really asking is, do you have a folder of these scripts somewhere that you could um, bring out and give to an artist tomorrow, and, and we could get published again? <laughs> oh man, I would love that. I miss writing the Phantom desperately. Even that uh, short story I wrote for Lightning Strikes recently was just—it was so much fun to do that, and so you know, like like being able to go back and have your favorite food for the first time in years. <laughs> so, but. Uh, we were setting the groundwork. We had introduced some new characters to help him out to kind of bring him into the modern world. We had introduced the character who was the kind of, you know, sort of taking the place of what Oracle does for Batman, where he would have somebody behind, you know, a computer network, yeah. um, you know, who could help him fight crime on a more global scale, help him infiltrate a lot of the um, internet-based criminal organizations, those kinds of things. Let him keep tabs on terrorist chatter that happens on gaming networks, all those sorts of things. And we were going to use that as kind of a vehicle to expand the, the Phantom's impact. And then we were also looking at kind of introducing some more of the King Features characters to kind of come into this universe. Um, there was a point where we were looking at... Um, trying to reignite the defenders of the earth. Oh, wow. Um, we had some, a, a handful of little side stories that we had kind of tied to the Phantom that ended up never getting published to kind of lay the groundwork for a lot of that. And really just trying to open up King Features' universe, so to speak, kind of sort of like the way Hasbro's doing it these days their properties of G.I. Joe and Transformers and the Micronauts and things. We were wanting to do that with King Features' suite of characters. That, that oh, I still curse Dynamite to this day. Um, <laughs> so I, I guess it's probably a good chance to talk about the elephant in the room, which is Dynamite Entertainment. Now, I remember when the news was broken and it was almost like my cat had died. Yeah. Um, now, 
Now, obviously, you're a little bit, well, you're probably just as, you, you were just as attached to <laughs> the Moonstone license and the Phantom as what us fans were. Um, what do you remember about that uh, ill-fatal uh, moment in time a decade or so ago? Well, I, I was, I think, about six months into my title as, as the group editor for the whole Phantom line. And so I was overseeing all the Phantom projects from Moonstone. It's your life, and I just kind of assumed that I was going to be shepherding the Phantom going forward for quite a long time. We had a bunch of different projects going. I was working with um, other writers who were, you know, contributing to the generation stories. I was working with a whole bunch of amazing artists who were doing, you know, we had KGB Noir going on, mm. um, the regular Phantom series. We had a bunch of short stories in the works. We were doing a uh, girl Phantom uh, a limited series that we were going to roll out a lot of these projects that were going on. And it was my day off and my wife and I were out eating lunch and I got a call from Joe and he asked me if I was sitting down and hmm. based on the tone of his voice, I thought he was going to tell me somebody died. Um, it wasn't long after Mike Waringo had passed and Mike was just one of my favorite people on earth. Um, and I, that, that immediately came to mind of, oh, no, you know, what's mm-hmm. happened in his voice of how, how devastating it was. And he proceeded to tell me the news. And, it, you know, you kind of go into that eerie, surreal, almost like time slows down for a minute while your brain's going, no, this isn't, this can't be true. And then it just kind of like, okay. I guess that's that. And King Features was gracious enough to let us wrap up a few of the projects we were working on, I believe. Um, Per Dynamite's agreement, they allowed us to still put out the last handful of things that we had invested heavily into publishing. Um, Mm. And that was just kind of it. And I just assumed that um, within a year or two, Dynamite would give it up and we would get it back. And it's just never happened. Hmm. So, how does that happen where King Features go from, you know, Moonstone that, you know, was doing a good job, that was... producing a lot, I'm assuming they were aware of, you know, wanting to bring you know, Defenders of the Earth back, that you're wanting to bring out a girl phantom, that, you know, how, how do they go from giving it to another company? Is it just purely because Dynamite offered them more money and they just fell for it? or I really don't know. I mean, I, I've speculated a lot of things, but I wasn't involved in those conversations. I, I spoke to Karen Moy after, and she was just as dumbfounded as we were. Mm. Or at least that's what she let on. Um, I don't know that Joe ever got a straight answer. Um, mm. So I, I'm not really sure, but it, at the end of the day, it's a business. You know? King, yeah. King Features is in business to make money, and, and you can't blame them for that. You can't fault them for that. You no, know, we can. If, well, we can't. <laughs> 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 you know, if, if, I haven't forgiven them yet. <laughs> if they're in the business of selling tennis shoes and and they're selling for a hundred dollars a pair of shoes, and somebody comes along and offers them five 
pair of shoes mm. that that doesn't mean that the person buying the shoes for a hundred dollars this could be really upset <laughs> but mm. you know, yeah it's just kind of the facts of life so you know i i i don't know how well dynamite fared with their their version of the phantom i don't know that they're, if they're even still putting it out um i don't know where any of that went and i, I don't know what the fan reaction was because it it, it just kind of you know, it jolted me so bad. I was like, I just need to take a step back and go focus on something. Yeah, else. yeah, of course, because you know, and we can sense it in your in your voice. We can sense, you know, the high and the excitement that you have of you know writing for it, and then we can, you know, sense the, the, the still the disappointment mm. to this day uh, in, in talking about you know in talking about it. Um, yeah. So I mean, fair was, to say. You didn't read a lot of Dynamite stuff then, Mike? I, I read the very first issue, and then I didn't read anything since. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I spent seven years, you know, feeling like I was part of the Walker family. Um, you know, Ed Rhodes and I were on the phone almost every other day talking Phantom stuff for hours on end. Um, Ed became one of my best friends. Um, yeah. I will miss that guy until I leave this planet. He's yep. just such a great person, such a great guy. He had such a heart. I've met so many, if you want to call them super fans of all different sorts of things from Star Wars, Star Trek, Batman, the Phantom, Flash Gordon. Ed was the best. He was yep. such a good man. And mm. Pistol Pete Klaus, I would spend a lot of time on the phone with him. Unfortunately, he and I have kind of lost touch over the years, but Pete was also a great guy. It was just such a wonderful community to be part of. And it, it just almost kind of felt like I got kicked out of a family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that was one thing that I know as a, as a fan, this was like when the Phantom Forum was still around and Chronicle Chamber in its infancy was the fact that you got yourself, Joe and the team at Moonstone were very accommodating to fans. Like you would hold competitions, uh, you know, like uh, Paul Andreas uh, Jonasson won a competition to get his mm -hmm. face in a Phantom comic. Um, you know, every time there was a question or an issue or something, you were like straight away replying to them, clearing something up, unless it was Arthur Peterson <laughs> or, or, or someone along that, that ilk. Um, but yeah, was, was that something that you guys felt like you had to do where you had to, um, I, I, I guess be accommodating to the public? Well, I, you know, I think if I remember correctly, I got this from Ron Mars who spent quite a while mentoring me. I owe so much to that guy. He's, he's just amazing. Um, that he was like, well, you know, when you, when you become a fan of something to some extent you give part of yourself to that and you get part of it in replacement so there's a sense of ownership that comes with it and i feel like every fan on the planet to some extent is a partial owner in the property yeah. is a partial owner in the mythos so to that regard it wasn't like i was out here on an island doing this myself or me and and sis and and the other artists were out there just kind of doing our own thing or joe was you know, sitting on a high chair, you know, 
dictating, you know, this is my property and this is what I'm going to do with it. It was, you know, this is what the fans own and the fans yeah. are the ones that, that need to kind of feel that they're getting what they want out of this. So at that point, you know, I think anybody that creates anything that doesn't just at least to some extent listen to the fans is doing themselves a disservice. Um, yeah. You know, you can't, you can't cater to every little crazy thing here, you know, like, you know, when I first put out my Lions, Tigers, and Bears book, I had some guy who spent days harassing a board box that you have to in the first issue. And I'm like, you don't, you don't have any issues with stuffed animals turning into real-life animals imbued with magic that fight monsters that exist in another realm, but you draw the line at whether these stuffed animals will fit inside that cardboard box. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the guy harassed me for a while, and I'm like, I... You know, I'm not going to listen to that. That's crazy. Yeah, but if it's yeah. a legitimate, hey, you know, Lee Falk wrote this story in the 50s and now you're doing something that doesn't jive with that. Have you gone back and read that story? To me, I, I need to listen to that. I go back and read that story. And, you know, sure, over the years, Lee Falk, like anybody, could remember everything he did. and He wrote some stories that contradicted other stories and things like that happened but the heart of the character always needed to be maintained. And I believe that the fans understand what that is and who else are you going to turn to besides the, you know, the Ed Rhodes and the Pauls and the germs and all these, you know, all of y'all that understand that and own that to some extent, you know, look at the wall of phantom memory. If you're not a phantom expert, who is? So who should I turn to, you know? Um, that was kind of it. it. It just it felt to me like it it, it it was just something that I had to do just as badly as yeah. I had to write the story. It, it felt like that you were one of us fans. Like you were as much of a fanboy as us, and you know you enjoyed. It was almost like you enjoyed reading the comics and stuff like that just as much as you did, uh, you know, writing the stories. And you know, you 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 rode the emotions with us. And, and you know and stuff like that and as a fan um who was you know i've been probably a collector for maybe 10 10 odd years so you know and then with the internet and being able to connect with fans from around the world it was a real great experience having that connection with a creator who was actually doing something with the fan with the fan that's cool i remember and i forgive me for not remembering who's but one of you guys sent a package with four or five fruit animals in it. And it took, I think, three weeks to make it from Australia to Arizona, where I was living at the time. And I remember just counting the days, waiting for that thing to show up. And it finally showed up, and I just sat there every free moment I had for days reading those. And I still have them, and they're still one of the coolest things that a fan ever gave me. And it, yeah. you know... I have rings and I have, you know, people have gave me stuffed animals for lions, tigers, and bears, and people have given me things for other other stuff that I've created and other books that I worked on. But those fruit annuals, for some reason, they just, they're like one of my favorite, you know, gifts that anybody ever gave me. And I think it was just because of the joy of reading the stories. It's, mm. you know, the rings are cool and I have key rings and knives and all kinds of crazy memorabilia people have given me. 
Um, and it's all great stuff, but having those books and being able to sit there and just read them again and again and again, it's just really cool. Mm. Yeah. No. I, I think that, yeah, no, and I remember you, I think from memory you sent me some of the comics signed by yourself and stuff like that. I've still got them um, in, in a special section with some of my other signed comics and that. That's cool. Yeah, and so. Yeah. Thank you all for that because it was just, it was just such a cool thing. You know, going back to what I was talking about when mm. I was a kid and I could only read you know, a Sunday strip every seven days. And for these, you know, to have these books where I can sit there and just read all these old stories in, in continuity, I had um, King Features had provided me with all the old uh, digital copies. So I had all of the newspaper strips on computer, but it's just not the same for me. I know some yeah. people like reading things digitally, but I just like having the book go curl up in bed and turn on the night light or the, you know, the light on my end table and just sit there and read for hours. Yeah. It's yeah, probably well, a good I time s- to ask yeah. Mike that um, uh, in 2007, when you did the interview with Joe Douglas, you said that you had read something like, um, or you estimated somewhere between a third and a half of all Lee Fork's stories. Um, have you, between the annuals that people have given you or the digitals or whatever it is, have you been able to make much progress on that? Do you think you've read um, past the halfway mark of the Lee Fork stories now? I think by the time it was all over and said and done with, I had read just about all of them, if not all of them. And I know I had mm-hmm. gone back and read several multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, the Sky, Sky Band stories I read over and over again. Mm-hmm. A lot of the stories in the 60s I read over and over again. I really just loved Cyberry's run. He's one of my all-time favorite artists of any any comic book character. So going back and reading his, his stories were really fun. Um, and it, it's just neat because it's what other character has such a rich history mm. and a rich catalog that you can go back and just dive into. Um, you know, the, the Lee Falk was unique on the face of the earth our intellectual property creators. He, you know, everybody knows he started writing it one day and he didn't stop for 70 years of Phantom Stories every single day. You know, what other property has that huge yeah. catalog to sit and read? And that's just such a cool thing. It's like, you know, if you're a diehard Star Wars fan, you know, they have the expanded universe and things like that, but really what you really fell in love with was the stories that George Lucas created. So with that being said, you've only got a handful that you can you can enjoy over and over. Oh, Lee Falk. Of the original creator's work, yeah. Yeah, and but with Lee Falk, you've got, you know, decades and decades and decades. Mm. It's You literally could retire at the age of 60 and read Lee Falk's stories until the day you die. And probably never repeat. So yeah, that's just such a cool thing. Mm. Mm, definitely, definitely. Um, another another question uh, I wouldn't mind asking you about is some of the creators and artists that you worked with. Did you have any in particular that you really enjoyed working with? Uh, uh, any artists that were you know special talents or um, or anything like that? Sis uh, and and Fernando Panish um, and Doug Clava. I mean, anytime you can work with a guy like Doug Clava, that's just an author. He is just such an amazing 
artist. I mean, he's he's the next level yeah. guy. Um, so it is just such an honor. Like I, I actually have one of his pieces of art around here somewhere, and it, it's one of my favorites in my collection. Um, and Doug is just a great guy. Yes. So any time I knew he was going to do a cover, I would get excited. Um, and then working day to day with Sis and Fernando, I still work with Fernando to this day. Oh wow! Um, they're just two really great guys that just they just loved doing it, and they would put in you know go the extra mile to make sure the things were the best they could do. Um, you know, most artists that I've worked with, and I've, I've man, I've had the the honor of working with some incredible comic book artists over the years. Just really amazing guys I was completely out of my league working with them um, but I've also worked with a handful that you know to them it was just cash and a check you know how fast can I whip this out and get paid and yep. with Fernando and Sis you never got that they would send pages over <clears throat> and I would just be wowed and then the next day they would send the page again with some alterations because they would go hey I sent you this and I realized in the background <laughs> there's a tree that didn't look natural and I'm like, yeah. nobody was going to notice that tree but you, but you still, <laughs> at the time, and, and you know, and you would have gotten paid, nobody would have thought anything of it, Joe wasn't going to call up and yell at you because you got a crooked tree in the background. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and, and that's, that's the heart that those guys have, and I just love that. Mm. So, you know. One of the things I liked about Scissors, um, I'm not going to try and uh, pronounce his full name, um, I've got a, a um, but he his phantom was a very it was a very sleek sort of like sleek overly muscular it was a very athletic mm -hmm. type of build of the phantom um, where it's it's almost like a like a Cyberry style yeah. where yeah. you know he he looks like a athlete rather than a, we've got a famous saying. On, we've got a saying that we call it on the podcast where a condom full of walnuts. <laughs> yeah, if I remember correctly, Cy was his idol. So yeah. when he was given the opportunity to, to work on the Phantom, he jumped at it. Um, if I remember correctly, it was Carlos Magno that did the first story with me. And yes, I think he got offered a, a job with a different publisher, if I remember right. And so he kind of was like, okay, I'm one and done. And um, Stiz had just kind of come along and he had, I believe he had done another story for Moonstone with a different character. And Joe called me up and he's like, hey, Carlos is out. We got to find a new artist. What do you think of this guy? And he said, and I was like, man, I, I like this. I love the Phantom. It looks like this is just so incredible. And we just clicked, and it, and it just worked really well. Mm. And then Fernando came into the picture uh, to do a fill-in so that Sis could get caught up. And it was kind of the same thing, where Fernando is just, he just loves the Phantom. Um, it's a labor of love for him. Um, it was to the point where he was like, hey, you know, if you've got something for the Phantom that you don't even know if it's going to get published, I just want to draw the Phantom. Oh wow! <laughs> and we were like, that's kind of the way KGB Noir came about. Is Joe and I had built a uh, a Moonstone pulp fiction universe, and we were going to introduce my Death Angel character, and we were going to incorporate the Black Bat, 
and uh, Mr. Keene and a bunch of the, the Pulp Fiction characters into this, and Joe had created a couple of his own. Um, and we were going to go about with this noir storytelling, and we couldn't quite get it off the ground. And then the few books that we put out, the Black Bat and so forth, didn't take off the way we hoped. Um, so then we turned around and we're okay, well, what can we do with this, this storytelling machine that we've kind of created here? Well, let's do something with Phantom. And then there's Fernando standing right there going, I want to draw more Phantom, I want to draw more Phantom. So we threw the idea at him, and he was like, oh, I love that. And he sent us these kind of sketches that ended up becoming some of the pages in the first KGB Noir. And we were like, oh, this is gold. Mm. So we ran with it. Um, and from memory, you actually uh, you actually use that as a as an avenue or or a gateway to actually introduce some of the other characters as well. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. We were um, trying to use that as a um, you know take these take the Phantom and get him to to kind of get people to pay attention, and then also introduce these other characters so that it would give them exposure. Um, yeah. Ruben Procopio, one of the greatest sculptors in pop culture um was originally going to do the kgb noir and he just is doing so many sculpting things for disney and so forth he just didn't have the bandwidth so having fernando right there and then having all these other characters and we brought in um some of the artists that i worked with you know with lions tigers and bears to do some stuff and uh we were able to introduce <coughs> several of the other all characters through the, the KGB Noir series, and we had plans to kind of continue that going forward where we would have, you know, the Phantom would run, say, 12 issues, and then we would replace the lead character um, with somebody else, like maybe it was going to be a Mr. Keen or uh, uh, Mandrake or somebody that would be the kind of the lead spot and then have the backup story be a different character and kind of use that as a way to, to kind of gauge you know, are these characters going to catch on? Are these characters going to have a fan base? Are they worth, you know, spinning off? Kind of the way Marvel Comics used to do it back in the day, where they would do Marvel 2-in-1s and Marvel team-ups and things like that, where they would just dedicate short stories in the backs of, of other comics. Like Cloak and Dagger have always been one of my favorite Marvel properties. And memory stories, they were introduced in the back of Wrong or something like that. Yeah. So... Yeah, Dan, from memory, you actually got a couple of the Phantom Noir uh, KGB um, comics. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct, yes. Have you read them? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I okay. have not. So, um, so, I, and I, and I've just, I must be up front. Well, I, I was up front with Mike before we started recording, but um, I missed this entire period and um, of the Moonstone run. I was living in remote outback Australia when um, they were when, when when you were writing this whole period, um, and we were lucky to get fruit comics out there. I was very grateful to have fruit comics, um, let alone anything else. So I didn't get them at the time. And Germ, you did send me the digital um, files for a lot of uh, Mike's work, and I just haven't had time to read them, unfortunately. So um, yes, so I, I apologise for, for for not having. Um, read the noirs. They they are in my collection, but I, I like the covers. But that's I haven't had time to actually uh, read them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just for the record, I wasn't actually throwing you under the bus. I was uh, <laughs> trying to because I knew you, I knew I knew you had them in your collection, so I thought you might have read them and you might actually have a question. 
<laughs> no. Oh, I've got questions lined up once you finish talking about the, the Moonstone run and that. I'm, I'm really enjoying listening to the podcast, <laughs> to be honest, um, uh, with the opportunity <laughs> to throw in a question <laughs> from time to time. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> So well, I I guess if if I if I can have okay, a so chance to throw a question in, yeah, go. Um, and, and this is like obviously tangent, but um, I, I get the feeling, um, and from what you've said, Mike, that you you are a, this, something of a serious phantom collector as well. I, can you give us something uh, of an idea of the scale of your collection? And I guess I'm I'm also curious. Did you you said you didn't? Yeah, quite naturally, you sort of went off the phantom for a while when the um the licensing arrangement changed? Did you pause collecting for a while? Are you back into it now? Um, how, how, who are you as a fan of collector and a fan as opposed to a creator, I suppose? Well, it's not as big as it once was. Um, I had a lot of, of really neat memorabilia, a lot of things. Um, uh, some of the big little books, uh, some of the older comics, um, a bunch of random pieces of memorabilia, keychains, things like that. Um, nothing like what you guys have. And I had a huge collection of graphic novels and comics, and hmm. uh, at one point sold off the majority of my graphic novel collection because we had moved a few times, and I was just getting tired of carrying these giant boxes full of books. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, And a good chunk of the Phantom books went with those. But I do still have the, the annuals, and I kind of would sit there and decide, you know, is, is the story power in this book worth the weight of carrying it, you know, to <laughs> location. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but I do still have some boxes full of Phantom Comics. Um, obviously have all the, all the Moonstone ones. Joe Gentile was gracious enough to send me uh, anywhere from five to 20 copies of every book I ever put out. And I still have probably two or three of every issue um, he was also kind enough to send me graphic novels when I would do conventions and things like that. And I think I have some of those left over. Um, the checkmate graphic novel I could never seem to keep. Those almost every convention I would I would just blow through however many of those I had. And it got to the point one point I actually accidentally sold all the ones I had, so I had to have Joe send me some more. But you know, primarily it's books, and then I have a couple boxes with a lot of little odds and ends. Hmm. So do you go back and reread your stories or, or anything like that? Or is it just kind of like that chapter's kind of closed? No, it's to me, because again, I'll, you know, a lot of what I see is the flaws. So it's, yeah. it's, it's almost kind of torture to go back and go, ah, I shouldn't have done that. Or, oh, I wish I'd have done, you know, some of the, some of the reader reaction will color how you perceive your own work to some extent. And, you know, I'll have an issue that I liked and then, you know, somebody goes off on the forums about, you know, I can't believe you did this or that or the other. And then it just kind of colors. Okay. Well, that's not one of my favorite stories anymore. <laughs> you know, <those laughs> to to be of- fair, I don't think there'd be very many. I'm a teacher, um, you know, whether you're a teacher or a carpenter or a builder or a whatever you are, I don't think there'd be many people who'd look back on work that they did 15 16 years ago and go, yeah, no, I'm really happy with that. I think most of us would have, um, yeah. would be able to see the flaws in it um, since then and hope that we've progressed and become better at what we do um, in, in that time. 
Exactly. And like I said, the, the final roar is probably the only story that I was happy with when it was completed that I don't think I would have changed a single word in it. Um, and I have reread that once or twice over the years. I've, I've shown it to people when, um, you know, trying to, to angle to get new writing jobs and things like that. I, I do a ton of ghostwriting these days and I've showed that story, shown that story to many a client, um, things like that. It's, it's, it's kind of a, something that made its way into my resume, so to speak. Um, but the majority of that work, the, the majority, you know, like my, my all ages graphic novels, the Gimmels and things like that. I, I, I just, I can't, <laughs> you know, and a lot of that stuff, I would love the ability to recreate it, but then, you know, you kind of lose whatever magic was there when you first created it. So it just is what it is. And yeah, with all the now, with all the story uh, ideas you had at the time, and I guess the perspective that you've gained since, uh, would you be interested, Mike, in um, submitting a story idea to a current publisher, whether it's Fru or Egmont or anything like that, or or you know, getting back into the Phantom World? Is that is that something you'd enjoy doing? Uh, Have you thought about it? Would you, uh, you, know, I, would I you would, go that way? I would. I would love to do it. I have actually connected with a few of the different publishers uh, thanks in part to Jern. Um, spoke to Fru when they kind of made their transition recently. Um, mm -hmm. And it's it's not something that, that has been uh, a fruitful discussion at this point. I think in, in some ways due to economics and other ways due to um, demographic appeal um, I know like a lot of the Egmont stories and, and some of the flack I used to catch from the Scandinavian readers was um, Egmont doesn't like the sheer amount of action that the American audience demands. Um, they like the kind of more conversational teaching moments, drama, personal interaction, those sorts of things. Um, and that's just not the type of writer I am. So mm -hmm. for that, that take, you know, you know, if you had a top 10 phantom writers in Scandinavia, I guarantee I'm not in the top 25. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and with Fru, they spent so many years just nothing but reprinting that we, I, I believe Joe had finally gotten to the point where they were exploring reprinting some of the Moonstone stuff when they lost the license. And that muddied the waters and Fru backed away. Um, don't quote me on that because I'm not positive, but I seem to remember that oh. as something that was going on in the background. And then, you know, Lightning Strikes comes along. I would love to write for them. They're great guys. They're from Ireland. I'm, I'm of Irish descent. Um, so being able to write the Phantom for an Irish publisher is like, like a dream come true to me. But they're a small press publisher, and small press is one of the toughest things you could possibly do. Um, so... I would imagine that they have a tough road to hope. So, uh, you know, I, I have no idea what kind of sales they're experiencing. I haven't had any of those sorts of conversations. Um, but just knowing what it is to be a small press publisher, even in the United States where you have, you know, millions of people, you know, that you could possibly sell books to, um, it's hard. It's really, really hard. And a lot of times the reason you see so many publishers go under is because it's a losing experience and it's a way yeah. of now you 
in talking about lightning strikes, uh, lightning strikes. Sorry, uh, you did end up having a, a short story published by them, and it also uh, reintroduced us to one of the artists you were talking about earlier. Yeah, I was able to do a story with Fernando Panish and, and letterer Josh Aitken. Josh also worked on the Phantom with us back in the day, and Josh and Fernando and I are kind of a. a ghostwriting graphic novel team where we have worked together with a lot of ghostwriting clients to create graphic novels and comic books for you know individuals that for whatever reason have a story that they would love to see turned into a graphic novel and just don't know how so. yeah so what was the other um uh the other artist sorry it was besides fernando oh uh, josh aiken he, uh, he did lettering towards the tail end of The Phantom. He actually wrote one of the stories that was going into generations. I don't know if that one ever actually saw publication. Okay. Um, but he is a, a really incredible comic book letterer, great typographer, a solid artist in his own right, um, and does great production work. He will put together cover dress and, you know, all those little things that you see in the comic book that aren't the actual story, um, you know, from inside front cover copy and the way the design looks of the book to back cover art, to all those kind of things Joshua will assemble. Um, he's very talented at that. Um, so, you know, he's, he's another great guy to get to work with. Just like I said, I just, I just have been so blessed to work with some really incredible artists over the Mm. So I think that story did get published. I think it was called Passages. Oh, okay. Yeah. Did, did um, put in the graphic novel? I know. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. The trade or a graphic novel that, that collected a lot of ones that didn't make it into the comics. Yeah, I think. Um, and I've got the graphic novel actually right behind me. Um. Passages, that's interesting. It's got it as a different creative team in this one. It was on, um, on Wikipedia and on in the actual book. <laughs> in the book, it's got Tony Isabella and Bob Ingerson, but on um, Wikipedia, yeah. it's got yourself and Josh Aitken. I know Tony did a story, so... Uh, uh, here we go. Okay, that's, that sounds... Well, yeah, by Josh Aitken and concept by Mike, by yourself. And so that would have been... What Phantom was that one? Because for those who don't know, basically um, Phantom Generations, you started off with the first Phantom and you created short stories and you did one for each generation of the Phantom. Yeah. Um, so I think... Um, yeah, I can't. It's not very good <laughs> podcast me reading this, but um, but yeah. So that was the last one that was actually published was by. Uh, you don't want to do a reading, um, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, nah, I'm not sure. Oh, like if I'm giving live feedback on the podcast I'm listening to, it's gone downhill in the last minute or so. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, who led in the peanut gallery? Um, so was it was it was it good to um, you know play in the sandbox of the Phantom again after so many years with Lightning Strikes, even though it was just a four pager? Oh, absolutely! And the 
the funny thing is, it, it, like, it, I just sat down and the story just flowed out like old times. I, mm. um, I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but I always have prided myself on being able to write things quickly. Um, yeah. And I'd gotten to the point where I could produce a phantom story in a script form in under a day. And oh, wow. so to be able to sit down in eight hours and, and iron out a full script, go back and edit through it, go back and make sure that it was good to go, um, just became the norm for me. And I've never been able to hit that stride with almost any other books that I write. Um, but I had gotten such a groove with the answer that that was something I could do. I sat down to write that lightning strike story and it, and it was just right back to that same tempo where it just poured out and the story wrote itself. And I was done fairly quickly and I was kind of like, oh, I'm done. Darn it. Now I want to do some work. You know, so. And then, you know, sent it over to Fernando. He sent back pages, you know, in, in his typical lightning speed fashion. And um, Josh did his part really quickly. And then it was like, oh, we're done. Darn, I wish we could do more. So. Yeah, yeah. Now, have you read this story, Dan? Uh, I'm sure I have. Because oh, I have read the lightning. Oh, no, hang on. It depends which lightning strikes have actually managed to get themselves to Australia. Uh, which which um, issue was it in? <laughs> it was an issue strikes, uh, Phantom Strikes 3, issue 3. No, so I have not because uh, number 3 has not made its way to... Um, well, I think you may still have actually touched the only copy to get to Australia of number 3. <laughs> yeah, probably have actually. actually that's, no, that's not it, Mike, that's it's not even a joke. That's actually, I think that's true. Yeah, I don't have a copy of it yet either, oh, so right. I, can, I would imagine. Um, I'll see if I can find it and I can show you. I'll show you after the podcast or something. But it would actually be the second copy because remember the first set, one to four, we actually did as a giveaway. Right, well, I, I don't know. I never saw them. So <laughs> uh, the lightning <laughs> strikes, that you, you, you talk about the um, uh, the problem of being a small press publisher. Um, they've They've had... Very big troubles with distribution yeah. and actually getting the books yeah. out, um, unfortunately. So, well, hopefully, everybody that listens to your podcast, which I'm assuming numbers in the millions upon millions of fans, will <laughs> buy Lightning Strikes comics so that those guys can write that strip and they can continue. Oh, to great we fans. hope so. <laughs> yeah. Sounds good. Everybody's. In fact, everybody should buy an extra copy and give it away to somebody who's not a fan because their life is yeah. deficient. I love that one. It's like your a public service. Defi- we'll just do that. The, your life is deficient without the phantom. Yes. That could be, that could be our new slogan. <laughs> <laughs> For those who came in late. <laughs> yeah, your life is deficient. <laughs> oh, um, so what are you working on these days? You said you're doing a lot of... Um, uh, graph, uh, ghost writing for graphic novels and stuff. So, uh, are you still enjoying being in the comics field? And are you are you are you doing much comics work, or have you got um, like a, a a real job in in maybe different types of terms? Well, it's it's primarily the the, the ghost writing stuff. Um, yeah, and I've kind of gone back to music as a creative outlet yeah. to some extent. Um, kind of started writing songs again, things like that. Um, I don't, I don't play shows or anything like that because nobody wants to see old comic book writer guy on the stage. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I've kind of gotten gotten back into that, and I've I've taken to just in recent months and probably last year buying old beat up guitars and fixing them up and selling them off to somebody else. And that kind of you know it has some creative aspects to it where I can kind of restore something, those sorts of things. Um, oh. I am hoping we're in the process of negotiating a new publishing deal for lions, tigers, and bears. Um, with that will come a lot more. Um, and when that, when that hits the ground, that will probably open doors for some other things that I have kind of back on the back burner that I don't want to talk about. This year. Is that still, so just tell us a little bit about lions, tigers, bears. Um, but I remember, I remember getting a couple of the issues and I, I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, just in a couple of minutes, you want to give us a bit of the idea of the concept and how many uh, issues, you know, you released of it and can it still be brought now? And Well, it's it's unfortunately at the moment, but there are plenty of copies floating around on eBay and that sort of thing. Um, it's a story about a, a young boy whose stuffed animals come to life to protect him from the monsters yeah. in his closet. Um, we put out three different limited series of four issues each, so essentially 12 issues. And we did, I think we've created about 10 to 14 short stories. Um, one of them was run in the Arizona Republic newspaper during the summer back in, oh, wow. I think it was 2005, 2006, um, as part of a, a, a partnership with the local library to get school kids reading during the summer. Um, hmm. And that that was a tremendous success for what it was. Um, that was a really a blessing to be able to be part of that. Um, the funny thing is, is when we when we first took out the story to pitch it, Jack Lawrence and I were both like, you know, we really loved the property, but at the time, the Spider-Man movie had, was the the hot rage. The Marvel Cinematic Universe was starting to to come alive, superhero properties. Mm. And here we are walking around with this story about a little boy and his stuffed animals, and we just promptly assumed we were going to get laughed out of every booth we set foot in. And we talked to, I think, four or five publishers before we made it to Image, and every one of them said they wanted to publish it. And we were kind of surprised. We're like, oh, maybe we've got something here. Walked into the Image booth, showed it to Eric Larson, Eric spent probably two minutes looking it over, which I swear is the longest two minutes of my entire career, um, <laughs> trying to read his expressions and body languages and the, and the, the hmms and huhs and things like that. And he kind of looked through it and he kind of got this look on his face like he wasn't enjoying what he was looking at. And he finally stopped and he flipped it closed and he handed it back to me and goes, yeah, we'll publish this. And Jack and I were on cloud nine and it just kind of went from there. Um, the book had its kind of 15 minutes of fame. The, the first issue sold out in three weeks. The second issue sold out in three days. The third issue sold out in three hours, which we thought was kind of a really neat little numerology yeah. thing. The fourth issue we triple printed, uh, trying to go off of that three thing, and it still the sold threes, out yeah. <laughs> in three weeks. And then we put out the graphic novel, and the graphic novel, or, or we collected the first one in the trade paperback, the first printing of it sold out same day. Um, really felt like we had a hit on our hands. And then Jack got an offer to go work on some other stuff. It was some of his dream projects. Uh, 
the Transformers and things like that, and he left. And it kind of derailed the series to some extent. Jack was a huge part of it. Um, his his dynamic skill uh, is is very unique. Um, Jack has a, a style that's really, really hard for others to duplicate, and it's not something that you see in most comic artists. And it just kind of became uh, almost as much of a part of the storytelling as the actual story and the characters was the style. So we found another artist, uh, Paul Gutierrez, who had spent quite a bit of time studying Jack's style, and he was kind of a big fan of Jack's, and he had actually replaced Jack on another book. And we brought him along, and he ran into some some struggles in real life that, that kind of kept him from producing the pages. And then we stepped away from that, and then we met Mike Metcalf. Um, Metcalf helped us write the ship and brought consistency back to the artwork. But by then, we had lost a lot of the momentum. Yeah. It just kind of... You know, the 15 minutes of fame was over, and mm. by then I was so entrenched in the Phantom that I was just kind of like, you know what, this just isn't going to work out at the moment. Um, I'm just going to pour myself into the Phantom, and that's kind of where it went. Mm. Yeah. Um, Dan, you got some questions, bud? Oh. No. I'm just, I'm really, enjoy- Mike, I love your, your passion for um, everything that you do, like even listening to all of that, but every, um, just hearing you talk about the Phantom, I, I feel like I almost don't need to have read any of your books to, to be just really enjoying having the chat. It's, um, it's um, no, I, I don't have any questions as such, Jermaine. I'm just really enjoying the, uh, the listen. Thank you. That's good. Um, all right, well, so okay, so what I'm going to do for for people like Dan who um, haven't read much Moonstone for whatever reason, uh, we do have an expand Phantom podcast. Uh, we actually got two part series where we went over. Uh, it was myself and Joe from memory. We went. Oh, ooh, excuse me. We went over and actually reviewed every single uh, Moonstone. Comics. So that was back in the early, early, early days. I think it was, I'm um, just, I think it was around in the 20s. Let me just double check. Um, yeah, 23 and 24 was where we went over uh, every single Moonstone issue. Now, if even of uh, stories that you that are worth uh, hunting down. So you've got the Tiger's Blood. Uh, the, the first annual, which is a kind of like a, a jam uh, story where you've got different artists and different uh, creators coming together. That was very, very enjoyable. Um, uh, we actually talked to Graham Nolan about that just recently. Uh, the Walker's Line, where the Phantom goes back and visits Clarksville. Uh, the Invisible Children arc, which is actually 17, 18 and 19. So I got that issue correct. Uh, checkmate. And then also there was another one, I think it was Man O War, where you actually explored the 13th Phantom, uh, which is the Phantom 26. Uh, that was a very, um, a very fun issue as well, which is where you got the Phantom who married, um, oh, what's, um, Jean Lefecht's, uh sister. Uh, you've got the End War. Uh, uh, 
uh, which is which is, and then you've got all of the uh, the generations as well. So if you if you don't mind a prose story, the generations is good. Uh, you can get it in a trade paperback, which is you know a good inch thick, and it's got you know a story about every single phantom. And the captain action wasn't bad either. Um, so there's there's a lot of stories there you should be proud of uh, of Mike and um I've I enjoy I still go back and read them all now you know fifteen ten years later um I I enjoy talking to you I enjoy you know getting some insight I guess um I still am angry at Dynamite for screwing you guys over um that's why they've never been on the podcast. Um. <laughs> well, for the record, I won't quantify that as, as screwing us over. It was business, you know. You do what you do for business, and yeah. you know. I'm, I'm a fan. Um, <laughs> you can say differently, but I don't blame Nick or any of the guys at Dynamite. They they, they did what was best for their company. Yeah, but so, not for the fans. Not for the fans. And King Features screwed the pooch as well. So, <coughs> they, um, yeah. So, uh, you know, it was it was huge. Uh, you know, it was a great honour catching up, reconnecting with you, Mike. Um, uh, we, we spent many many a time uh, talking, discussing the Phantom a decade or so ago, and I've enjoyed the last hour and a half talking with you as well and I hope our listeners have as well. Uh, anything that you wanted to um, uh, say or any anything that you wish that we asked or, or anything like that that you wouldn't mind um, uh, mentioning? No, I just, once again, want to urge everybody to support Lightning Strikes and True and everybody that's putting out Phantom Comics. The, you know, hmm. the more copies that are sold, the more stories that can be produced and, you know, again, there's no such thing as too much phantom. Yes, exactly. I'll, just looking back on the last hour and a half, Mike, I think the favorite, the, 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 the thing that I really enjoyed hearing the most was you saying that with your lightning strike stories, it was um, like getting back into your favorite food. And I think um, for every fan, um, every time you open up a phantom comic, it is like, you know, it's a comfort read. It's your favorite food. It's a warm dinner on a cold night. It's, um, and, and so to hear you say that right then and there was like, yep, yeah, you're you're yeah. a genuine fan and person, and um, we really, I, I really appreciate and have enjoyed talking to you. So thank you very much for your time tonight. Yeah, and thank you guys. It's been fun. Hopefully, it doesn't take ten more years before we do this again. No, yeah, definitely yeah, absolutely. not. I noticed with your lightning strikes uh, story, you've kind of left it open where um, that whole. I won't give too much of away from the story. But you've you've left it open, so um, I'm looking forward to the next parts about the story. Yeah, I am too. <laughs> <laughs> so no, we really appreciate your time, Mike. Uh, um, yeah, uh, you know, um, yeah, I don't know. I've probably said it many times, but um, you know, you were very approachable for all the fans, and I, uh, I. You know, I'm sure some. I'm sure that's come across with your passion um, to our listeners as well. Yeah, like I said, we're all we're all part of the same family. We all, you know, we all have some ownership in this. You know, yes, so to speak. So it's you know, it's I just it's cool. So I really like it. I 
I wish the Phantom was as popular as, you know, the Avengers or Justice League or some of those other properties, but, mm. you know. Well, we'd be 20 movies deep if that was the case and we'd all love it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If it, then all my collectibles would be more expensive to buy off eBay and stuff. But I really appreciate your time, Mike. Okay. Thank you, guys. Have a good day. All right. Thanks yeah, you very too. much, Thank you. All right. So, Dan, did you enjoy that? Yeah, I did. As, um, as I said, I, I, um, it, it took me back to the days of before I was on the podcast and um, was just listening to you and Joe. And maybe I reckon I probably did listen back to that, you know, episode 26 or 27 or whatever years that it was where you reviewed every Moonstone episode. And I would listen to that because I liked listening to fandom podcasts and had no clue what you were talking about because I'd never read those books. Um, but this time, I was able to chip in from time to time. Um, which was what I was always <laughs> after. <laughs> so that no, was all good. <laughs> so interactive podcasting. Way, yeah. So does it make you want to go out and get a couple of the issues now? The comic. Oh, for sure. Like it, it, it certainly does. If a, if a Moonstone comic was to come across my radar and uh, I was in a position to pick it up, I I, I would absolutely. Um, hmm. Listening to Mike talk. Um, makes me want to read his stories. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, yeah, no, well, I hope, because there was, now, you know, not everyone enjoyed Moonstone, but majority of people did enjoy Moonstone. A lot of, majority of people enjoyed what they, uh, the passion they had and what they brought out. And to be honest, they did not have as much delays and stuff like that compared to some of the other publishers that we have experienced in the last decade. Um, so no, so a huge shout out to Mike for the time. Uh, I believe it was about 6 or 7 a.m. in the morning when we spoke to him. Um, so, you know, that, I guess that goes to show his dedication and his passion as well that he's willing to, you know, speak to us first thing in the morning. Um, so if you... Uh, uh, if you're late to who we are, you can find out all about us at chroniclechamber.com, which is our website. Um, on there, we have all of our podcasts. We all have our news um, and everything else phantom that we do on there is basically housed through there. Um, if you need to get in touch with us, you can email us at chroniclechamber at gmail.com. If you are a social media junkie, we are on Facebook, which is chroniclechamber.com. Um, we're also, uh, help moderate the Phantom Collective group on Facebook. Uh, if you're a Twitter at Chronicle Tweets, or if you're an Insta or a Grammar, uh, you can find us at Chronicle Chamber. Um, of course, all of this cannot be, uh, done without our huge supporters in our Patreon. Uh, so basically the Patreon is people who donate a couple of dollars a month to help us with the website, with everything else that we do, which is the website, social media. Um, uh, all, we've also got our Phantom Preservation Project, which is where we um, preserve phantom history that has either been lost or is about to be lost. It would be great. It would be great to be able to get some of those 48 plots or <laughs> stories or that, that Mike Bullock had 
and he told us about like when he heard, when he told me about that, I'm just like oh oh um, no I knew the moment he said the number forty eight <laughs> you your for for those who haven't got no well, and this isn't going to be a YouTube uh, podcast but uh, on the video. Your eyes lit up, your head swole about an inch. You're like, well, how can I wear 48? <laughs> it, was, it was extraordinary. That You're going to go to sleep uh, tonight, not counting sheep, but counting potential moonstone stories. <laughs> yeah, well, and then one of the first emails that I write when I you know, get a chance will be, Mike, do you still have that bit of paper with her? But, of course. So that, that that's it's the type of stuff that we do with the fancy preservation project. So cool stuff like that. There's been some, um, like another example is uh, in an interview with Shane Foley, who talked about some covers that he initially pitched. You know that type of stuff is on fancy preservation projects. Um, so all you know, as well as newspapers from around the world and from the last couple of decades as well. So basically, if you are a Patreon supporter uh, and you pledge more than $5 a month, you get free access to that. Uh, so huge shout out to them. Now, if you uh, come to us late or this is the first time you've ever listened to us, you can subscribe to us via iTunes or if you're an Android user, you can... Um, Get to us like Podbean, Player FM, Castbox, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and we're also on Spotify as well. So, um, uh, if you uh, a user of Spotify, search for you know the Phantom Podcast or Xban or Chronicle Chamber, and you should be able to find us as well. So, again, a huge shout out to uh, Mike um, for his time, for his insight. Um, for letting me vent a little bit about Dynamite Entertainment, um, I will seek counselling over that and we'll forgive them in maybe another decade or two. Um, well, Dan, <laughs> always a pleasure, my friend. Yep, thanks very much, mate. Um, happy fan to me. Happy fan to me. See you guys. 500 years ago, he washed ashore the sole survivor of a shipwreck. And upon the skull of the man who killed his dad, he said, I'm mad, I must eradicate piracy, injustice and cruelty. And all my sons will follow me, so evildoers will believe that this man cannot die. The Phantom, the ghost who walks. The Enemies beware, the Phantom's always there, but you won't find the Phantom 